Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast here this Sabbath. Um, we're glad that you joined us. Uh, let me uh, share just a couple of quick announcements with you before our service gets underway. Uh, for those of you who might be able to come, uh, in December we are hosting a Hanukkah conference during the Feast of Dedication. And we have a number of speakers that are going to be coming and joining us. This is here in Norman. We have a conference center that we have set up there for it. I think you'll enjoy yourself immensely. And we'd like to have more fellowship, you know, with all of you guys during the Feast of Hanukkah, the Feast Festival of Lights. So if you can, you can contact the ministry and see about registration and how to make yourself um, available to come uh, to be a part of that. Uh, so check that out if that works out for your schedule. Um, we are also, uh, Lion and Lamb, we're going to be renewing our Q&A broadcast. The next one will be on the 15th of November at 7.30 p.m. If you'd like to be a part of that and send biblical questions in to us to help answer, help understand your messianic faith better, send your questions to qa at lionlamb.net, and we'll try to make those a part of the program. So, again, if you have a question, go ahead and send it in now, but look forward to the next broadcast of November 15 of this month. All right. One last thing I'd like to share uh, with you before we get it underway is, as you know, every once in a while I come to you and speak to you about the need for you to share and give to this ministry. Uh, let me give you the two reasons why we need to do that. Number one, we need the resources to be able to continue this broadcast and continue to work this ministry. Um, if we don't have the resources, then we don't have the staff, we don't have the ability to do the things that we do, and it's really up to you uh, and the Lord as to whether or not this broadcast continues. He can shut it down anytime he wants just by you not giving. And if you, if you agree this ministry should remain and this broadcast should remain, please consider uh, sharing with it. All right, without any further ado, uh, Shabbat Shalom to all of you, and join us now in Kiddush in our broadcast. Join my family as we usher in the Sabbath. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kiddushanu Bemetzvotav, Vetzivanu Lehadlechner, Shel Shabbat, Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Bless the wine. Baruch Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Amen. 
Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. One beautiful bird. Hamotzi. Hamotzi lechem in haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Let's bless our wives. Lord, thank you so much for blessing me with my wife. I pray that you bless her hands as she prepares our home and takes care of it throughout the week. Thank you for blessing her hands as she takes care of our child. And thank you for blessing me with everything I can do to bless my wife so that she continues to bless me. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. Now we do the blessings over the sons. Yeah, that's you.
It's time for the Baruch Hu. Baruch Hu et Adonai Hamvorach. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach le'olam v'ahed. Blessed be the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Mi chamocha. Mi kamocha ba'elim Adonai. Mi chamocha nedar ba'kodesh. No horatehilot. Oh, 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 who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise. Doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you, O Lord. And now, for the blessing of our Messiah. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et haderech Yeshua, b'mashiach Yeshua. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in the Messiah, Yeshua. Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat ledorotam b'rit olam, b'ni uvein b'nei Yisrael othi le'olam, ki sheshet yamim asa Adonai et ha-Shemaim ve'et ha-Aretz, uv'ayom ha-Shvi'i Shabbat v'ayinafash. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations, as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and rested. And now if you can all please face east with me for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto Leolam Vayet Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. And now for the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha b'chol levavcha u'v'chol nafshecha u'v'chol merdecha. Ve'hayu hadvarim ha'ele asher nochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Ve'shinantan levanecha ve'dibartabam b'shivtecha b'vetecha u'v'lechtecha b'derech u'v'shach b'cha u'v'kumecha. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your home, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your arm, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. 
and you shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Bereshit, the book of Genesis, to chapter 18, where our portion, Vayera, will begin for this week. As you are opening the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bachabanu Mikol HaAmim Venatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. As I said, our portion starts in Genesis chapter 18. And this is the story in which the Lord appears to Abraham in the form of three people. This is one of my favorite Torah portions. There are so many things here in this Torah portion that can teach us about our faith. If we believe, if we believe as Abraham believed, all the amazing things that can happen. And that God will share his promises and will keep his promises that he's promised to us. If we have the faith, if we show the hospitality that Abraham gave. Let me give you a little backstory here. The portion or before this one and the chapter before this one, Genesis chapter 17, is the time in which God talked to Abraham and confirmed his covenant with him and gave him the promise. This is when he changed his name from Abram to Abraham. And he said, you are going to have a son. And when God told Abraham this for the very first time, Abraham laughed. Abraham laughed and he said, in his old age, would it be possible for him to have a son? And God told Abraham that you will have a son through your wife Sarah, who also was past childbearing age, and that his name was going to be Isaac. And he confirmed the covenant with him and gave him the sign of the covenant, the sign of circumcision. So our portion here begins in chapter 18 where it says, The Lord appeared to him by the oak trees of Mamre. I say him because it doesn't introduce Abraham once again. Uh, it doesn't say Abraham's name. So this comes immediately on the heels of the previous chapter. Well, what happened in the previous chapter? At the very end is when it says Abraham was circumcised. He also circumcised all the men of his house, including Ishmael, who was 13 years old at the time. And so the Lord appears to him, and it says here, He was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day, so he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. So 
when you look at this and read this, sometimes you might gloss over the fact, okay, well, he, was, he lifted his eyes. Okay, well, why was he looking down? Well, if this is immediately on the heels of the previous chapter, Abraham was recovering from his circumcision. The rabbis say that this might have been a time of three days later. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. that could have been, this could have been very much the very next day. So he was recovering from that. That's why he's sitting in the doorway of his tent. In the doorway of his tent. In the heat of the day, some people might think, oh, well, he's just relaxing in the shade, you know, while it's high noon and very hot in the day. Actually, the Hebrew uh, idiom for the heat of the day actually means about 10 o'clock in the morning, which is when all the work that needs to be done would be starting to get done. That's when you would, uh, after probably finishing breakfast, getting yourself ready, you would be in the throes of working in the day, working in the field, tending to the flocks. And so by Abraham sitting here... In the heat of the day, obviously this also leads to the fact that he wasn't necessarily able to get up and do the daily routine and do the work that he would normally do. And so he's recovering. But what happens here is very interesting when he says, Look, behold, three men were standing there. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. Okay, so this is a man who we just said was sitting in the heat of the day when work would be done. He was looking down. He lifted his eyes. He got up and he ran to meet them. Now, obviously, at any point in time, if somebody's recovering from a procedure like Abraham was recovering from, that might be like, okay, I'm going to let them come to me. But no, Abraham's faith is so strong and his belief in God, he knew who this was. And he got up and he ran to them. Even through pain, even through anything he might be going through, this shows the faith that Abraham had when he was going to meet these people. He bowed himself before, before them and he says, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Rest yourselves under a tree. I'll bring a morsel of bread and you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass in as much as you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly make ready three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Obviously, the introduction of Abraham saying, hey, let me give you a drink of water, a morsel of bread. What he then in turn gave to them and went to prepare was obviously much finer than a morsel of bread. That it was, this was a fine meal. This was a meal fit for a king that you would go and you would slaughter a calf and that you would serve this. His hospitality was second to none even for these men. Obviously, Abraham knew though that he was playing host to the very host of heaven. When it says that there were three measures of fine meal, uh, that uh, Hebrew word there is seha, and as far as we know, that measurement of dry ingredient is equivalent to about 11 liters. So three measures of that, for just translating that into our modern terms, nine gallons of flour. You can imagine how much flour that actually was that was being prepared to make cake. That's enough food to feed Everyone probably in Abraham's company, but he goes and he makes this to serve these people, these men. 
and obviously a, an entire calf, and he gave butter and milk. These are things that took time and effort to prepare, and he goes and he serves this to the Lord. So the Lord begins a conversation. They have lunch together. And he has the conversation. He says, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the door, in the tent door that was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Here we have the instance in which the Sarah reacts immediately to the word that she's going to have a son. It actually makes me think more that the promise that occurred in the previous chapter had been very quickly or very closely tied to these events. Had Abraham even had time to share with Sarah what God had said? Had, did God recount everything to his wife saying, we're going to have a son, we're going to name him Isaac. And then very, within at least three days, uh, possibly less, you know, somebody's coming to the tent and saying, hey, by the way, you're going to have a son. Physically hearing that for the first time, Sarah could have laughed. But her laugh was different than Abraham's laugh. She is reprimanded here in the scripture where that hers was maybe in more of a mocking tone. And that one of the things that we look at, though, is that even though in a mocking tone, Sarah is still being the mother of the promise, that she, her reaction sometimes is a natural reaction that we have sometimes. When God tells us something or surprises us with some of his promises, that we cannot hold back our reaction. Now, it appears Abraham's, you know, laughed and reaction. He always shows that faith though, in God, that whatever God has said, he will do. He will be called, he was called to leave his father's house, go into the land of Canaan. And he waited 25 years before his son was born. He went to the land of Canaan when he was 75. Isaac wasn't born until he was 100 years old. 25 years waiting. His faith is so strong. Do we have that same faith? Or do we react like Sarah did sometimes? Do we laugh and chuckle and say, oh, I don't know about that. Then sometimes, then you might turn to us and say, no, you, you, is, is anything too hard for the Lord? Sometimes some of us have to be reminded of that. But we, what we should strive for is to have the faith like Abraham, who has the patience to wait 25 years for the promises of God to be fulfilled. So what happens here after... Abraham uh, shares, uh, shows the hospitality, gives lunch to the men. Something very interesting happens. Now, I, we've covered this. Anybody who's studied Torah has seen this and heard this portion. And, and, it's, and it's always very interesting. It's almost a mystery how this all works out. Because the men rise up and they start heading toward Sodom. This is the, what Sodom, when it says Sodom, we, we believe actually is there was five cities that were in the Co uh, collection of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is where the last time we heard of Abraham's nephew Lot, this is where Lot was staying. So anytime they says, oh, he's going to Sodom, uh, you know, if somebody says that, then Abraham would know, oh, that's where my nephew Lot is. The men rise up, head that way. Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Lord then speaks and says something very interesting. And this is one of the fascinating parts where we get to hear God talking to himself.
And so we get to almost have this insight into truly what God, what he thinks sometimes. And, and, and he's, when one has a conversation with oneself, usually that's sort of a secret that no one ever gets, is privy to hear those words or hear that information. In the scripture we have recorded that we have a conversation of God with himself. He says this, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, now, then, now this is the Lord speaking to Abraham now, because the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because of their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. And the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord, and Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with, with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked. So the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the places for their sakes. This continues on and Abraham continues to negotiate with the Lord in trying to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. He whittles it down to 45, then again to 40, to 30, to 20, and then to even to 10. And he introduces that whole negotiation here. Abraham, very humble, saying, Indeed now, I am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. And then he continues to negotiate here. What we have the example of our father Abraham is this, is that he has shown the example to do what the Lord has said, to go when the Lord has called, to share hospitality, to do good for three figures, even in a state in which his uh, body being in pain, he still goes to serve, he still goes to do the right thing, to do righteousness. And he goes to do justice and it says God gives this example. He speaks about Abraham and his household. That Abraham has shown himself to do what the Lord has said. To keep, to teach his children, the household, the way of the Lord. Doing righteousness, doing justice. And that doing what God has spoken to him. We should hope and strive that our lives, or that God would describe us in the exact same way. That he would say in his heart, in himself, this is a man, this is a family who has a history of doing what I have said, who has shown hospitality, who has all this faith, to then I will now have a conversation with him. Many of us, we pray to the Lord. We seek the Lord in, in a great number of things. Usually, unfortunately, we tend to go to the Lord in prayer to speak to the Lord when we're in need. When we have some sort of need, when we are then uh, 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 needing something, somebody needs healing, um, we don't have enough money, I don't know what I'm going to do in this situation, and I need some help, there's a hurdle in front of me, and I don't know how to get over this, so I'm going to go before the Lord, and I'm going to pray that God would remove this hurdle, that God would heal this person. But do we go and do that only when we have need, 
Or do we have, have we set ourselves up to where we do the, what the Lord has said and we have all of this faith to where that the God comes to us and says, shall I have a conversation with this person, with this man? That we always go to Him, but we should strive to be a people that God would want to come to us. I actually heard something very interesting, an amazing uh, phrase, and it was talking about modern organized religion versus true religion, true belief in God. And it was fascinating uh, uh, wordplay here, is that organized, modern, man-made religion always has to do with man-seeking God. We, are, we look to the heavens, we build great towers and, and high places to seek after God. Man-made religion, we're seeking after God. But true religion that we see through the example of the patriarchs here in the scripture is God-seeking man. God looking for a man that believes in him, believes in his promises, has faith, has hospitality, does righteousness, does justice. Will God ever find that in man? That's what God's looking for. That's true religion. That's what God, we have that example here. Where God goes to look for somebody, God goes to call someone. When, when Adam saw that he was naked for the very first time, that he was a, he, he, he was sinned and then he realized his shame and he's going and hiding. What happened? God's walking through the garden looking for Adam, looking for man. And what did he find? He found a man who had shame, who was embarrassed. But when God is walking here and comes up to Abraham's tent, what did he find? He found a man who was recovering from an injury, yet through all that stood up, came to him, and went and served him. And with no shame, there was no shame, there is no guilt in Abraham at that time. He obeyed what God said. He did what God commanded. He followed after what God has promised. Believing in, no matter what, it doesn't matter if it's 25 years or whatever, Abraham believed. That's what God found when he came walking across and came across Abraham. What does God find when he comes walking in your midst, into your house, into your family, into your place of work or your place of fellowship? What will God find if he was to walk in there? Does he find maybe more what he saw in Adam? Those that have shame, those that have guilt, those that have, are, are, are struggling in all of these things. Or will he find faithful servants who have done and lived their life doing righteousness and justice and teaching their children all of these things? Is that what he will find if God was to walk in our midst? And when he does, when he finds that, then we as believers in God have the ability to intercede on behalf of something, a need, or something that somebody, uh, uh, to heal somebody, or to spare someone for destruction. We have the power to intercede on those things, to have that conversation with God. It's a little controversial, actually, if you think about it, to think that, you know, is God the same yesterday, to, today, and tomorrow, and that He's all-powerful and He's all-knowing. Amen and amen. We have examples in Scripture where the holy men of God were able to plead with God and what appears God changes his mind or that he listens to what someone has said. We have that example here in Genesis 18 of Abraham pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah. We also have it in Exodus 33 after the sin of the golden calf 
Moses speaking to God and God saying, I will not go with this generation that have sinned here. I'm not going to go into the land. I'm not going to go and be with them. And Moses said, we will not go if you're not with us. And then it's like, well, well, you, you can go into the land, but I won't be there with you. And Moses pleading with them, with God, to say, we could not survive if you do not lead us. And at the end of the entire conversation, God continues to go with the children of Israel, leading them in the wilderness. Even though God said that's not what he was going to do. We have it in 2 Kings 20 with Hezekiah, that he's dying of, of sickness. And he cries and pleads, and God is speaking to him through prophets. And saying, this is what's going to happen. And then he goes and he pleads and he weeps bitterly and just pleads for the Lord to extend his life. And the Lord does extend his life for 15 more years. And he heard his prayer and his plea and his petition. When you are a righteous person, when you have faith like Abraham, like Moses, like Hezekiah, who was a good king. Then you have the ability to intercede on behalf of something or someone with God. In the same way that, that believers have the ability to go in and cast out demons in the name of Yeshua as a belief of those things. You have the power to pray to God and He will hear your plea and your petition. But you have to be righteous. You have to have that faith. You have to have that first. Now God chooses us. God, God chose, why He chooses us and one over another, we, we don't know. But when he goes and chooses us and then goes looks to, to find us wherever we might be, wherever uh, station of life we're in, whatever walk of life we might find ourselves in, if he comes and finds you, what will he find? Will he find the one that he chose or will he need to choose another? Will he need to find an, uh, choose another one because what he finds is shame and disbelief and, and one that does not walk in righteousness? That's something we can learn with through our father Abraham that when we believe as he did, then we have that power to intercede and to pray to the Lord and he will hear our pleas and our petitions and healings can take place. And, thing, and, and people can be spared and saved because somebody prayed and pleaded before God. Our portion continues through uh, Genesis chapter 19, continues on through... The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, we, knew, we know, are familiar with this story, so I'm going to uh, just go over it real briefly. The two men went into Sodom and Gomorrah, and they, did not, they were unable to find uh, ten righteous within the cities. And so judgment came, and Lot was able to flee with his daughters. And his wife looks and looks back and turns to a pillar of salt. A pillar of salt and then we have the story of Lot and what happened with his descendants through his daughters that became great nations that were nothing but enemies to the children of Israel. I said in uh, last week's portion, I believe, that it's everything to do with Lot always just seemed to be, he was the one that came with Abraham into the land of Canaan. And if you look at the promise of what God asked for him to do, he said, leave your father's house, leave your possessions, go, go for yourself into the land. Yet Lot kind of tagged along and then seemed to be nothing but a trouble or a problem for Abraham in his life and even to his descendants as well. So we have that sad story of what happened to this other family member, the nephew of Abraham. 
Here in our portion, we also have this covenant made between Abraham and a king named Abimelech. He lived in the land of Canaan as well. And actually, there's two covenants here, one in Genesis 20 and another one made at the end of chapter 21. And I've said this before, that the way I see this with Abimelech is that Abimelech, his motivations appear to only be one where he wants to dwell in peace with Abraham. Abraham's become an amazingly great company, flocks and herds and, and, and people. And he is a, we say Abraham, we say the families of Abraham, but he was basically a nation at that time in equivalent to size. When he went down to Egypt and received all these blessings, Abraham was a great people. And Abimelech, he wished to live in peace. So they made covenant with one another. And I relate Abimelech and his heart and his motivation. I seem to see, whenever I read this, I look and see modern day Israeli Arabs. There are Arabs in the land of Israel that are citizens of the, of the modern state of Israel that truly only wish to live in peace. That are not following after uh, some of the uh, greater, more radical teachings of Islam and that they desire to wipe out the, the infidel and wipe out Israel from the map. There are Arabs and there are people in the land who desire to just dwell in peace that are not native born or naturally born to Israel or Jewish. And so when I see Abimelech, that's what I see, at least in my own heart, my own opinion, uh, the opinion of Ephraim Judah, is that those, uh, some of those people desire to live in peace, and you can make agreements with them to work with one another, to dwell in the same land, that there is a possibility to dwell in peace with those that are not always directly descendant with, to you or from your descendants or naturally uh, a part of your heritage. Even though we also have the example, though, of many great enemies of Israel and of the children of Israel that all came and became other nations. And so it is possible to have, make, make covenant with and to live in peace with others. And that's an encouragement that we don't have to always be uh, disappointed when we see enemies come against us and, and, and people that hate us without a cause. And that do we think that everyone is like that? No. And we have examples of that here in the scripture. Genesis chapter 21, we have the birth of Isaac. The Lord visits Sarah, and he says, uh, The Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken, for Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. And a set time in which God had spoken to him, and Abraham called the name of the son that was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son when he was eight days old, as God had commanded. And Abraham was 100 years old when the son was born to him. And God said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. Her laughter that was in maybe a mocking tone before becomes a laughter of joy and of peace uh, here in Genesis 21. She also said... Who would have said to Abraham and Sarah would nurse children, for I have borne him a son of his old age. Sarah, the miracle continued on, not just that she was able to conceive, but that she was able to nurse the child as well. And that a great uh, rejoicing even came that she could nurse him all the way through and then even to the day that he was weaned, as we see in verse 8. Very interesting things about Isaac. Isaac is the promised son. Isaac will carry this example in his life and in his testimony that there are so many amazing parallels. I'll just sort of like uh, spoil it for you here. Isaac, the promised son, parallels Yeshua the Messiah, the Son of God, the promised son, sacrifice, the Savior of the world. The parallel is there from having a miraculous birth to Sarah being uh, unable to bear a son to where that we also believe the virgin birth of Yeshua the Messiah and that you almost question is all like, which is a greater miracle? That a woman who is, whose body has gotten to the point where she is unable to bear children has a child or a woman who's perfectly healthy and young 
bears a child miraculously. You almost can't compare one over the other to say that that uh, one was a greater miracle of a birth. Also very fascinating about Isaac's name, and I'm going to talk about this maybe in the next couple of portions here, because again, it's going to, we're going to talk about Isaac, we're going to talk about the amazing um, uh, patterns and parallels to the Messiah, Yeshua, that Isaac has. Um, when you look at the name, God actually named Isaac. Isaac's name first appears back in the promise of, of, of to Abraham back in Genesis 17, where he says, you will call him Isaac. This is what his name will be. God named him. But if you remember also, Abraham, his name was originally Abram, as far as we know, named by his father. But then God, when he goes to make covenant with him, has to change Abram's name to Abraham. And then also in later portions, we'll see the birth of Jacob. And Jacob was named because of the uh, circumstances of his birth, that he was named Yaakov because he grasped onto the heel of his brother. And that he goes and his name appears to have been named by his parents, however... Then God has to change his name to Israel. Isaac, on the other hand, God named Isaac and never went, never had his name changed through the covenant that God made through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The name Yitzhak, Isaac. Very interesting in the Hebrew. There's a cool little lesson right here that goes into the deeper things. And sometimes these things are just coincidental. But at the same time, they're also fascinating when they parallel so many different things. Yitzhak is made up of four Hebrew letters. A Yod, a Tzade, a Chet, and a Kuf. Yitzhak. And if you look at the gematria value of those Hebrew letters, now every Hebrew letter has a number that's associated with it. Sometimes we might look too heavily into those things and put too much weight into the meaning of letters and the, and, uh, uh, the numbers that associate with Hebrew letters or the number value of a Hebrew word. And sometimes those things, can, we can find amazing coincidences and patterns and parallels. Some are more astonishing than others. And so this one is actually just an interesting thing if you look at the individual note. Number value of each letter. The yod, the number value is ten. Number ten. Why, why would why would ten be important? Well, it's interesting that we obviously have um, ten commandments, and that um, Isaac, the through ten commandments, the pattern always means judgment. Also, that yod also means a hand, like always something that that is doing an amazing miracle. If we look at the number value of the other letters, tzade is ninety. If you remember, what was the age of Sarah when she gave birth to Isaac? Ninety years old. Also, the Chet, that number value is an eight. How old was Isaac when he was circumcised? Eight days. And then the last letter, Kuf, is a hundred. How old was Abraham when he bore Isaac? He was a hundred years old. In each of these letters... There's a number that specifically ties and associates with, that would mean something to Abraham, that would mean something to him. And so, however, then when you put it all together, and you have the name of Yitzhak, Isaac, the name of it means he laughs. Because Abraham laughed when he first heard about the promised son. And Sarah laughed. And so then there was, there was laughter and there was joy. And so, the, again, you put it all together and there's all these amazing little uh, patterns and parallels here. What happens here is, however, there's a young man by the name of Ishmael that's also in the household. This was the young man who Abraham asked, is this the, man, the young man who's going to be the son of promise? That he came from my loins, but he went, uh, the mother was Hagar, the Egyptian bondwoman that was a maidservant to Sarah. And so when the child is weaned, there's a great feast and there's a great uh, celebration that takes place. 
when Isaac is weaned. And then what happens is that the son, it says here in uh, verse 9 of chapter 21, Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, he was scoffing. He was not laughing, he was not celebrating, he was not rejoicing, rejoicing, he was scoffing. And here it says, we have the story here where Abraham then casts the woman out with the son, sends her on her way. And because it was displeasing to Abraham that there was scoffing in his house at the birth of this promised son. So what happens here, and we again have this other example of when, you, when someone is scoffing, what they're almost doing is they're almost laughing, but laughing at somebody and not with somebody. Where if we have a celebration of great rejoicing, we instead have someone scoffing. And this whole passage, it's interesting, Ishmael's never mentioned by name. It always says the son of the Egyptian or the son of Hagar, the bond sir, the bondwoman. And so it's almost as if his name has been removed from our scripture here, basically to show the judgment that this was not, this was not right, this not, was not appropriate. However, God still, because through Abraham all the families of the earth will be blessed, there's a story in which Hagar and the boy, they go... And they go down to a place, they run out of water, and then they find a well. And Hagar, God speaks to Hagar and says, this young lad will become a great nation. That he will. And God will still remember his promise to Abraham. Now, we also believe that Ishmael and his descendants became a great number of enemies to the children of Israel over time. But we know that all things are through God, uh, that he has created, glorifies him, his name, his kingdom. And so that God has a great plan and a purpose to the descendants of Ishmael. That there is a still some sort of uh, a great prophecy to still be fulfilled. That maybe we don't know how this all works out. But Ishmael, though being a descendant of Abraham, there is still a promise and he was still uh, preserved. And that his name has become great throughout all of our history. But as well, we also have still the promise of Isaac and his descendants uh, continues on that promise as well. Our Torah portion here concludes in chapter 22. Now, this is one of the most famous passages of Scripture that we are, know and are aware of. We know of this story in, our, um, in Christian churches. And what we have here is the, have the binding of Isaac, what is called by in he, the Hebrew the Akita, which uh, is where Abraham's faith is tested by God. Once again, Abraham, I've already been touting the praises of Abraham's faith in this message already, but to where God calls Abraham and he says, take your son, your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to this land and you're going to offer him up as a burnt offering before me again. And Abraham acts. Abraham, believing in God, again, his faith is unwavering even in something as, as grave as this to actually sacrifice this son, this promised son that he waited 25 years for to send him back to the Lord. There's only one thing that I could think of that Abraham knows. First of all, he believed the promise that his seed and the, the blessings would come through Isaac, because that's what God said. So the only thing I can think of is that Abraham must have believed in the resurrection. He must have believed that if he's going to do this and he's going to act it, then God, well, he's like, God, if you want me to do this, I will do it, but you're going to have to raise him if you're going to keep your word and your promises. Abraham believed in the resurrection. Other fascinating things about this passage of Scripture. Here in my Bible, I have a note-taking Bible, and I like to study and, and, and teach just out of my Bible, and I have a big margins with a, lot of, um, uh, with a lot of notes and things that I share. And I'll have some color coordination here, and everywhere I put in my Scripture, I put a red pen. Is actually usually something that I reference in the New Testament, or to Yeshua himself. In this passage, 
I have a great amount of red in this passage. Because of the patterns of parallels to Isaac, to the Messiah. First of all, if you look in the Hebrew in the words where it says, Take now your son, your only son Isaac. The amazing thing, the Aleph Tav, the word et, which is just a grammatical transition here in the Hebrew, but for those of us that believe in Yeshua the Messiah, those of us that know he is the Aleph and the Tav, appears twice in that verse. That now take Aleph Tav, son, Aleph Tav, in the Hebrew, that's the way it's laid out there, that there's almost, we're pointing to something. And he says, whom you love. Uh, It's interesting there, that's the first time in all of Scripture that the word love appears. Here, all the way here in Genesis 22, when we're talking about Noah, we're talking about Adam, we're talking about this, that we've never heard the word in all of Scripture, love, until this point. And that we're talking about here, if we're talking about the promised son, we're talking about the son in whom you love, and if it's a pattern of Abraham loving his son, we're also talking about a God who loves his son, Yeshua the Messiah. And that he goes and he takes uh, uh, Isaac to the place which is called the land of Moriah, which we believe is Mount Moriah, which is Jerusalem. And he goes in there. Isaac, whenever we see the depictions of this, we might think Isaac is a young man. As far as any genealogy or, or, uh, can be determined, Isaac was at least 30 years old. Isaac was in his 30s when he went to go and be sacrificed. Yeshua, we also believe, was in his 30s as well. So he, Isaac had, his, had the power to resist this. Had the power to, to say, hey, uh, Father, I'm not going with you. I'm, uh, I'm going to be the sacrifice. Because he, he does ask, and he says, we have the wood, we have, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And God says, I'll provide the lamb. But you could probably kind of get the sense, Isaac being an old enough man, to kind of know what was happening here. But instead, he still willingly went with his father in the wishes and the will of his father, willingly going to sacrifice himself. It also says that when, it says there that God took him and laid him, they created the altar, they put all this wood, and they laid Isaac upon the wood. In the same way, if you can just picture somebody willingly being laid upon wood, you can picture the Messiah himself when he was laid upon the crucifixion state. It also says that when he was bound, that he was bound, the only place in the scripture where that Hebrew word specifically, akad, and that's where we get the word akida, when we describe the binding of Isaac, is to bound him. Now, there's a similar Hebrew word that's called akod, which means striped. It appears six times in Genesis uh, chapter 30 and 31, and that's when talking about when there was the striped sheep. That they were ring-straked, actually, is the, is the ancient word that describes that the sheep of Jacob's flocks later on will have all these rings and marks on them that will indicate whether they're of the flock of Jacob. So what we have here is that it's very similar to the word Isaac was marked where he was bound. That he was ring-straked, where, and if you, someone is bound, you bind their wrists. And do you think it's possible that after this took place, that there was a permanent mark or a scar of the binding upon Isaac's wrists after this took place? Again, so many patterns and parallels to this sacrifice, and that God stops Abraham from this sacrifice and instead provides a substitution in place or instead, which is our, the entire foundation of our belief in Yeshua the Messiah, how his sacrifice is a substitution for something that God has called for maybe us to be sacrificed because of our sin, because of we have rejected the covenant, not had the faith of Abraham, 
but then he provides a substitute. And in this story, we all know that there is a ram that's caught in the thicket with a crown of thorns, if you will, that then is given in place of Isaac. Again, all of these things all tie back to this pattern of the promised son and who we believe in as messianic believers in this faith, in the Hebrew roots, of believing in the salvation of Yeshua the Messiah and his sacrifice being an acceptable substitute. All of these stories just enrich our faith with everything and encourages us. So I would, in this message, this would be what I would say, is that may we be encouraged to have the faith like Abraham, to when he, we're called, even to do something that we think might not be possible, let us think beyond what we can see and believe in the resurrection even when there might be no evidence that would, that would hold it or cause us to believe that. Let us be faithful to do, even when we have every excuse to just sit on our hands and, and not get up to greet the Lord or greet somebody and to be hospitable, let us be like Abraham who ran to the men to serve them. And that we let's always remember that if we believe like he does, we have the ability to pray and intercede on behalf of those around us and that God will keep his promises, even, even providing for himself a substitution for where something that may be a sacrifice that we deserve to give, God gives a substitution and he covers us in that atonement and through that sacrifice. What an amazing blessing God has given to us and so many patterns of parallels to the stories of old that we have in our Torah. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, for all the teaching that you give to us and all the instruction. Thank you for our father, Abraham. And Father, may you, when you find and search for us, may you find in us faith like Abraham. And Father, may you always uh, uh, keep your promises, Lord, and we thank you, Lord, for everything that you've done and everything that you've given to us, including the sacrifice of your Son, Lord, the promised Son, for our salvation, for the sins that we've committed, Father. What a great blessing and honor that it is, Father. And so, Father, we give you all the honor and the glory and the praise, Father, and you are the righteous judge, the righteous King. And so we love you and bless you and stand in awe of your power and your presence. So we thank you, Lord, for all of these things. In Yeshua's name, Amen. Blessing after the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natalano Torah Temet Fachayalam Nata Betochenu Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the Universe, who has given us the Torah of Truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. So turn with me now to Second Peter 2, and let me read for you uh, what this passage has to say. Uh, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, follow along with me. But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought, bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment. 
and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, and he rescued the righteous lot, oppressed by his uh, by the sensual conduct of the unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from the temptation and to keep unrighteousness under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures be destroyed, suffering wrong, as the wages of doing wrong, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, and they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery and never cease from sin, enticing the unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children forsaking the right way that they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the ways of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a dumb donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without waters and mists driven by the storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, who barely escape from the ones who live in air promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the word, uh, world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Yeshua the Messiah, they are again entangled in themselves and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have not known the way of righteousness then having known it to turn away from the holy commandments delivered to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Now, the whole chapter is going through a, a series of arguments, uh, and it's recounting as a basis of, for the judgments of God and saying, look, God has judged people before in the past. And in our Torah portion, we are given the specific uh, facts and the case that was made for when God did come and judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, in going back and doing study about Sodom and Gomorrah, why, what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah that was so terrible uh, we don't have a lot of biblical evidence on it. We have a few items that are, are part of it. And it's all summed up in this verse that came out of, uh, of our Torah portion called the outcry of Sodom. What was the outcry of Sodom? That the Lord heard someone that was in Sodom 
cry out of the torment and the difficulty and what was going on in Sodom. So it wasn't just Sodom was having a big party down there that the Lord didn't like. There were a multitude of people being harmed. And furthermore, the sexuality that was associated with it was not the core cause. That was the symptom of why there was an outcry. What was it, according to the sages, what was the great outcry of Sodom? What was it that brought about all of this flagrant sensuality that was symptomatic? What, what, what began at the very bottom? And the bottom is, is they lost their way in understanding justice. They had corrupt judges. The uh, extra-biblical teaching that is given on the Torah, uh, some of the stuff that you find in extra-biblical sources, ancient uh, extra-biblical sources, um, indicates various stories and examples of what took place down in Sodom. And basically what it came down to was, while there was leaders and kings over these cities, and there was a government over the city, it was the individual judges in their judgments that became corrupt. And they particularly became corrupt with travelers and with strangers and with people who were minority in state with regard to that community. That the mistreatment of a traveler the mistreatment of an innocent person who happened to walk into that situation not knowing what was going on, the harm that was done to him was, um, was the great outcry. And because everything became corrupt in all judgments of how to deal with other people, well, guess what? If you're going to break the basic rules on right and wrong with a person, why do we need to have any rules at all for anything else? How about rules for behavior, social behavior? We don't need any rules for social behavior because we don't have any rules to determine right and wrong. And so the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment is became, it became a point of that everything had become so corrupted that great harm was taking place. There's one particular story that's told from the biblical sources about, and this could have been the basis of what they were referring to as the outcry of Sodom. Now, like the Bible uses that phrase, but what is it referring to specifically? One extra biblical source gives an answer to it. It speaks of a man who was a traveler, an innocent man, who entered into one of the cities in Sodom. And like a traveler, he made the comment. He said, uh, do you have any merchants? I, I would like to buy some food. And the citizens there decided to capture him. And they did. And they restrained him. And mockingly, they said to him, they said, oh, food here you can't purchase. It's all free. Food is free. You don't have to worry about paying for food. All the food here, it's free for everybody. And he's like, okay, well, that, that's great, but why, why are you restraining me? And essentially what they did was they brought food out and set it just beyond his reach. He could see it, 
but he couldn't reach it. And they restrained him, and they starved him to death in the middle of the city while everybody mocked him and watched and essentially killed the man publicly, taunting him because he had come in to buy some food. So you can imagine if you have a community of people that is willing to do that and there's no legal system to protect the innocent and protect them, well, you can imagine all kinds of other things that would take place. Wholesale disregard for people. And if you recount in the story of Lot, when the Lord sent the two angels down with Lot, you know, they were commanding and asking for these two to come out. They wanted to deal with these two. That they wanted to usurp, uh, they wanted to use their authority in their community to do harm to a traveler. And uh, that's what we have in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that that was the level of it, and that God had finally had enough of this, and no more did he want to see the innocent die and and the stranger be harmed. And the homosexuality thing, the, the flagrant sensuality and so forth, that was simply symptomatic. That's how despicable it had become. It just, that's what came out of it. Now, there's other judgments mentioned here in, um, in our passage that we read, but they all share this same common thing. If you go through each one of them, here's Peter giving the same teaching that I just gave you. And he's saying that the sensuality, the arrogance, the corruption that was taking place, that the defilements, all these things are present in this. They were present in the world that Noah was in before God judged the world by water. They were present at Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he goes on to say this is how the nature of defilement, revilements, sin, debauchery. This is the common ground they all follow. Now, I don't know about you, but as I was reading this in preparation for this study, uh, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm fighting back feelings. I'm going, um, Peter is describing the world I live in. And it is the same world that we're living in. You know, the whole lesson that, that Peter is trying to make here is, remember what the Lord did before on how to solve this problem? With the obvious point being, if the world decides to go that way again, what do you think the Lord's going to do this time? Well, the obvious answer is, he's going to be consistent. He's going to do what he did before, and he's going to judge this world. Now, according to the prophecy, we all know this. He's not going to judge it by water. He's not going to do the Sodom and Gomorrah thing, you know, with fire and brimstone. But he is going to use fire. And he is going to consume his enemies by a consuming fire. And we understand that to be the day of the Lord. When we read about the prophets, when they talk of the day of the Lord... And you read through the weight of what he's talking about. 
And you ask, why would God be that vengeful? Why would God be filled with that much wrath? Why would God do that? All you have to do is come back here to Second Peter 2 and read about the world that we live in today, and there shouldn't be any question whatsoever about it. That we can see a direct parallel, you know, to it. Um, now, mind you, that's only believers see that. Unbelievers don't see the cause and effect. They don't believe that God judged in the past. They don't believe God will judge in the future. They believe that it just goes on and on and on, and you can do whatever you want. I want to step back for just a moment and talk about philosophically what is being corrupted in our country and in the world that we have today. Fundamentally, this is where, you know, like we in Sodom and Gomorrah, understanding the corruption with the judges and judgments, I want to talk about the fundamental corruption that we have today. Our Constitution was based on biblical principles. And when the founding fathers, which were devout men, by the way, when they got together and they decided how this country should be run and the Constitution would become the supreme law of the land, uh, they took their understandings, their righteous understandings, that they learned in the faith from the Lord, and they said, well, now we're going to set this up for the whole country. We'll set up the same structure. And one of the first things that it begins with is that it says that Man has certain inalienable rights. And what that means is, he has, every man has certain rights to his life that don't come from a government. They come from God. That the, we all share the same creator, and as a result of being created by him, we have certain rights that he's bequeathed to us in just giving us life. And that government, therefore, should be based on not determining the rights of human beings, but guaranteeing and ensuring that those rights are maintained and that government should never become tyrannical to, to trample on those rights. And so they were setting up a government structure to make sure we don't mess with the rights every person has received from God. That's actually the premise of the opening argument, the justification for us to have a constitution. But what has changed today? Here's what has changed. Rights don't come from God. They don't come from a creator. These people are so adverse to the creator and to God, they won't even allow that truth to emerge. That's how much they are godless. So how do rights come then? Where do we get rights from? Well, the obvious answer is, has to come from the government. So the government can decide who has rights and who does not have rights. And if you look at the news media in our country for this generation, um, what is the constant social justice argument that's being made? 
It's all about the government needs to guarantee the rights for certain persons. Now, one of the interesting things that was originally set up in our government was we're going to have majority rule. We're going to follow democratic principles. We're going to say the majority of the people, if this is what you want, then that's the way it should be. But they put in provisions to never allow the majority to ever oppress a minority. And part of the struggle, the growing pains that we've had in our country, is making sure that the majority of citizens, in using the power of the government, cannot harm a minority group of citizens. And so all of the racial stuff that we've seen in our generation is about is fundamentally about that. It's about equal rights under the law, the 14th Amendment. And that came out of the Civil War era when they began to address that question. And it's from that argument that every other fringe group, every other group that is not the consensus, not the majority, they're all lining up following that example. And so, for example, the homosexual militant community are lining up that the majority is oppressing us, and therefore uh, they're not permitted to do that by the Constitution, and we have, should have equal rights under the law, and we should have, and, and they're to the point of we don't like those religious people standing up for marriage and denying marriage to homosexuals. We can't get a Christian minister to do a marriage. We can't get a Christian uh, wedding cake baker to do a wedding cake for. We, can, we you know, because. We have a behavior here, not a minority group, a behavior here that falls under the definition of being highly unrighteous and the kind of stuff that was involved with Sodom and Gomorrah and the world before the flood and all this stuff that Paul's talking about. And so the Christians are drawing back from that. They don't want to be a part of that. that that's tormenting to a righteous man to see the whole community do that kind of stuff. But rather than taking the position of being the one who's oppressed, he's accused of being the oppressor. Well, it speaks to what Isaiah said and that Yeshua quoted from him. Corruption of this type is when there's a, a flip-flop that takes place in thinking. If rights don't come from God, they come from men, the government, then there's a whole flip-flop of thinking where it, when it comes to the subject of righteousness then the guilty are charged as being righteous and the uh, as being excuse me the guilty are charged as being righteous and the innocent are then considered to be the guilty and you have such a role reversal here in the thinking in the deep thinking of it the sexuality part, the sensuality part, the flagrant uh, nonsense that follows from all of that, the bizarre that comes from all of it, that's not really the core issue. That's just symptomatic of how fouled up the thinking is. In Romans, Paul refers to when they get to that level, God gives them over to a reprobate mind. Now, what exactly does that mean? That means that all of their thinking is perverted. All of their thinking is completely disturbed. They have no foundational principles. 
They refuse to follow rules. They want to make their own, quote, rules, which they themselves won't even follow those rules. And that's what we see going on in our generation. It's one of the reasons, it's one of the evidences that tells me that maybe we're coming to the end of the ages. And maybe this day of the Lord thing is right around the corner. Because God is not going to come and judge the world in the day of the Lord unless we have this kind of thing rampant in the world. I want to share a quick story with you that I just learned the other day. I have a friend. She's a waitress. There's a certain restaurant I like to go to uh, frequently. And there's this one little uh, Mexican gal, uh, waitress there, always takes care of me, and I always try to take care of her with a, a nice tip each time. So we've, over the years, we've developed this kind of friendship, and it's come to the point where I'm interested in how her and her family's doing. She's always asking me about Lynn and my family and how we're doing. And, and you know, it, it, it's developed into more than just a waitress-customer relationship. It's, it's, a, it's a friendship. And we're happy to see each other when we get a chance to see each other. She shared about that she just had an opportunity to go on vacation down to Mexico, but that she'd had a frightening experience. When they got down there, there was some ominous things began to appear, and they became very concerned about it, and they decided to cut short their trip, and they left in a completely different time and way than the way they had come in. And... She was then contacted, oh, thank goodness you got out of there. You know that there was some of the cartel people waiting for you and your family. And she was like, what? What what are you talking about? She says, oh, yeah, you were a visitor in the community. The cartel people had already got together. They were going to rob you, murder you, and steal your two daughters and put them into the sex trade business. Citizens of this country. That's what this world has become. Scares the daylights out of you, doesn't it? Um, Here in the United States, Las Vegas, lots of fun people going to a concert. Some idiot is halfway up a hotel with a whole bunch of firearms, and he decides to just wantonly kill as many people as he can possibly kill and it's like shooting fish in a barrel. We've also got ISIS terrorists. We just had another terrorist event. Went down to Home Depot, rented a truck so it could run over and kill a bunch of people. I mean, you don't have to go to a foreign country to find yourself potentially in a dangerous situation where... All human rights are gone. And by the way, the government cannot protect you from this. As you know, uh, in our government that we have right now, here in the United States, they refer to it affectionately as the swamp. That the corruption is so rampant that even if they recount what the corruption is, Nothing can be done about it. We have a corrupt 
special prosecutor who's just going to go after people that it, just because it's a political thing. And whereas we have the whole other political party with years of constant witnesses and so forth, explaining none of that can be pursued. It's like there is a group that is running the country that is above the law. And the law can't touch them. Justice can't get there. And they exploit and pervert justice to come down to affect the innocent. That is Sodom and Gomorrah. That is what was called the outcry of Sodom. Peter's rendition here of a description of them. Literally, you could take these words and you could post them and they'd be a description of us. Let me specialize on one of the things that's, uh, that is here um, just to bring it into spiritual focus, and this will be my final point for this. Let me take you to uh, verse 15 where it says, Forsaking the right way they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Balaam was a prophet. He was a respected religious man. Kings would purchase his services. They wanted his counsel. Because they believed that he had a relationship with Almighty God and that he exerted a certain righteousness that was essential in maintaining kingdoms and governments. Righteousness exalts the people, but unrighteousness destroys the nation. And so he was sought out for those reasons. And Balak decided to hire him, as you know in the story. And... The example is given to us of religious men who walk away from righteousness, who love the wages and the gain of unrighteousness. Um, there are very few large ministries in all this country, very few large ministries in this country. Uh, that have good resources, literally millions of dollars, that is at all teaching the commandments of the Lord. They're not teaching the definition of righteousness or justice or why God has such a thing as sacrifice that leads to salvation. They skip all of that. They focus in on prosperity and health and blessings, which come from obedience, not from their faith. But they have decided to teach, well, your faith is what produces the blessings. And along the way, not only have they gone astray from what the Scripture teaches, Along the way, it's become just a system for collecting up monies. 
And, of course, when they get the monies, they don't live like the other brethren do. They live like the elite do. Here's an interesting part about that. If you have an incident like Las Vegas with a shooter killing a whole bunch of innocent people, their ministry will not be addressing that subject. They don't address the subject of terrorists trying to kill us. No, they're way too busy on their program and on setting up the giving program for them. Now, I wish it wasn't so. And for those of you who say, well, that's an overstatement, oversimplification, I I dare say you cannot prove to me otherwise. What I've said is common knowledge. You know, just like it's common knowledge in this country that Hillary Clinton did a bunch of bad things and has not spoken the truth and is a liar. It's common knowledge. And I'm saying to you, that if you can see that, you can see this too. So, what are we in the world going to do about all this? Me, I'm waiting on the Lord. Because I don't think this will get fixed by a new election. Uh, by us organizing community groups, or I don't think that I or anybody I know can stand up and champion to lead the nation back to righteousness. I believe that we've gotten so far that the only choice for God is clean this mess up. And God is, by the way, been in the business of doing that occasionally. And that's what the lesson is trying to teach us. When it gets that bad, God has to go in and clean it up. And I think we're getting that bad where the only way that we're going to have is God has got to clean it up. So woe is us. You know, we need to pray and hold to God's promise where he is able to preserve those that belong to him and the righteous in the midst of that. He knows how to preserve us and protect us and pull us out of that. In the case of the Great Tribulation... He has promised us to lead us to safety and take us to the promised land. He He saved Noah and his family. And he's in the business of saving the righteous. And that is the good and positive word for us. But we better hold to what the Lord says about that. We better be looking for his deliverance in the way that he chooses to do it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the incredible stories of our father Abraham, and in particular the story about Sodomor and the judgment. Thank you, Lord, that Peter has reviewed for us the many judgments that God has done upon the world, and that while the sin is worthy of judgment, that God's able to protect and deliver his people. And we look forward, Lord, to you protecting us and delivering us from the days that we live in as well. In Yeshua's name, amen. Shabbat shalom. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. 
you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat shalom. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing. Shalom. 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 God has put a smile upon your face. He's got the 